Hello and welcome to the Sporting History Podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sports History, in association with the Institute for Historical Research. This week, the podcast features uh, a recording of an online event that was held this week uh, called Documenting the Olympics and Paralympics. Um, it was an event that was sponsored by the British Library and De Montfort University in association with the uh, BSSH. And we'll dive straight in. And here's Raf to introduce the event. I'm Raf Nicholson. I'll be chairing the event today. Um, I'm a senior lecturer in sport and sustainability at Bournemouth University. Um, this event today is a collaboration between the British Library, the International Centre for Sports History and Culture at De Montfort University and the British Society of Sports History. So thank you to all those organisations for their help and support in allowing us to put on this webinar today. We're particularly grateful to the British Library who were the original hosts for this event and they'll also be hosting our postponed in-person event in summer 2021. This event today came about not only because 2020 was supposed to be an Olympic slash Paralympic year, but also because the web archive team at the British Library are celebrating two significant anniversaries. This year, the UK web archive is celebrating 15 years of archiving the UK web space. The British Library is also a founding member of the International Internet Preservation Consortium, and they're celebrating 10 years of archiving the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Their collections contain web content from around the world in multiple languages. Our second event sponsor is the International Centre for Sports History and Culture at De Montfort University, who have been involved in this project from the start. Today they're represented by Dr Heather Dichter and we look forward to a bigger DMU presence, including talks by their archivists and the centre's director, Professor Martin Polly, at our in-person event next year. Um, and last, but by no means least, thank you to our third sponsor, the British Society of Sports History. Full disclosure, I am the current chair of the society. Our purpose is to promote the study of the history of sport. And we publish a journal, Sport and History, and we organise an annual conference. So I'll just give a little quick plug for that, that this year it's going to be taking place over Zoom on 26th to 28th of August. And you can find out more information about that um, and the society generally on our website, www.sportinhistory.org. Okay, I'm just going to quickly um, introduce the event now. Uh, so the event was in an alternative universe meant to be a full day in-person event held um, today at the British Library in London. However, the pandemic rather put paid to that. The aim was to bring together archivists and sports history researchers to discuss the collections which were available to use when researching the history of the Olympics and the Paralympics. So that's still our aim today, but we're obviously um, not meeting in person. We are doing this via a webinar and we're also doing it on a slightly smaller scale as a kind of foretaste to the postponed in-person event, which hopefully will take place in summer 2021. So with that in mind, we've got a mix of speakers today, two from the heritage and museum sector and two from academia. Our first speaker today is Laura Brown. Laura is a research fellow in the Department of Architecture at Northumbria University in Newcastle. As an RIBA Part 2 Qualified Architectural Assistant with a background in sport and exercise development and sports facilities operations, her research interests are focused around the promotion of sport, health and well-being through the provision of quality architectural design and urban space. Her interests in architectural history and photography contributed to the development of her PhD thesis titled The Architectural Design and Planning Legacies of the European Summer Olympic Games 1948-2012. to which explored and documented socio-cultural design legacies in Olympic host cities after the Games. As a recipient of the Advanced Olympic Research Grant, 
Laura's current work extends this research into the context of the Winter Olympic Games. Right. Yeah, so I'm going to talk today um, about my experience of using archives in my research, which primarily um, concerns architectural design and reuse um, in this context of the Olympic Games. Okay, so I'm going to talk about this in relation to two research projects. The first formulated the basis is my PhD, which was funded by Northumbria University in Newcastle and explored the unfolding of legacy and early legacy developments in post-war European Summer Olympic Games host cities. The second project is a project funded by the Olympic Foundation for Culture and Heritage through the Advanced Olympic Research Grant Scheme. Um, this is an ongoing piece of research and it explores the phenomenon uh, of architectural design and reuse, but in the Winter Olympic context. So across these two projects, the research begins with the first editions of the Games to take place after the Second World War um, and the 12-year hiatus in Olympic events that resulted from its outbreak. Um, this, in this period, the scale, scope and cost of, and popularity of the Games demonstrated exponential growth exacerbated by technological advancements in broadcasting and aviation. During this period, the design and construction of uh, host venues and sites uh, saw an, an increase in cost too. Um, so my research documents the design, construction and long-term use development and function of key venues and sites over this 64-year period from 1948, which is the first editions of the Games to have taken place uh, after the Second World War up to 2012, um, so the most recent uh, editions of the Games to take place in Europe. So that was Turin 2006 for the Winter Games and London 2012 for the Summer Games. So the purpose of my research was to develop a deeper understanding of um, the historical development in Olympic design and construction. Um, to see how sites and, and venues have evolved since the Olympic Games, to identify the patterns of reuse and the characteristics of design and adaptation that have supported a positive long-term future for venues. So uh, as the Olympic Games have grown in popularity scale and scope, we've increasingly seen um, examples of disused and abandoned stadia in the media as the requirements of the infrastructure necessarily necessary to host an Olympic Games has evolved um, and the cost has risen, there's, um, there has become kind of a, a, a much more difficult uh, relationship with reuse because of the specificity of venues. And as the significance of sustainability more generally has been established in wider societal debates, the issue of promoting positive legacy in uh, Olympic venues after the Games um, has risen as a priority um, for host cities and for the International Olympic Committee. Venues of the Games are one of the largest expenditures of hosting the event. They leave an indelible mark on the urban fabric in Olympic cities. Um, whilst the Games provide an opportunity for host cities to undertake wide-scale urban regeneration that might not otherwise have been completed and you know with the potential to benefit the local and wider community after the event. Um, the, the games are still uh, you know something that are sought after to hope 
by host cities. Um, but as the specificity of venues has, uh, has evolved in recent decades, um, securing long-term function has become increasingly difficult. Um, for example, ski jumps for the Winter Olympic Games that are configured for elite level sports are difficult to repurpose for, the use, for use by the community. And whilst there's nothing new about uh, buildings changing their function, uh, structure tends to outlive function in buildings and throughout the course of history, all sorts of buildings have been adapted for a huge variety of new purposes. But it's particularly pertinent in the case of the Olympic Games where the primary function of a building has an unprecedentedly short lifespan in comparison to the majority of other building projects. Throughout the history of the Games, there have been several examples of stadia that have prospered um, and become a significant resource for the local community and a noteworthy part of the architectural heritage of the city for decades after the event. Um, by developing an understanding of the facets of design and adaptation that have promoted positive legacy in such venues, um, my research seeks to support the delivery of positive legacies in the future by harnessing those design ideas. So my research adopted a comparative case study approach um, using a really broad range of archival and self-generated materials and methods to develop a really comprehensive picture of design adaptation and subsequent reuse across all of the post-war European Summer and Winter Olympic Games venues and sites. Um, with particular reference to a comparative uh, sample of key venues that are consistent across all editions of the Summer Olympic Games. Um, so looking at kind of the sites generally in the location of sites and, and key venues, but then looking at, at those key venues such as the Olympic Stadium, um, Swimming Pool, Velodrome, Athletes Village, um, the ski jumps, uh, bobsleigh runs, um, and ice arenas in the Winter Olympic Games, uh, the, those buildings that are really kind of representative of the games, and specifically some which are, are, are difficult to repurpose afterwards. So in my research, I used archive uh, materials, not only as a reminder of the past, but perhaps more importantly, as a source of knowledge and a caution or inspiration for the future. I think at this point it's probably worth mentioning a little bit about my background and um, standpoint as a researcher. Um, so kind of the epistemology that underpins my research. So as Raf mentioned in the introduction, I studied architecture um, and I'm situated in the Department of Architecture uh, in my current role. But previous to this, I studied photography and sports and worked in the sports industry for around a decade in various roles of sport development and facilities operations. Um, I actively participated in competitive and recreational sport and exercise. And I think that my experiences as athlete, operator, photographer and designer have probably in some way shaped the way in which I understand and seek to understand sports buildings uh, and sports spaces as a researcher. Um, and in some ways, this informs the methodology that I use um, and the types of data that I use in my research. So ultimately, we design buildings for people and we shape spaces to facilitate particular um, experiences for users, but also to facilitate particular functions. 
so and um, whatever capacity a building is used by by a particular user group that's really central to the building design so to in in kind of any choice of a particular research method there are theoretical implications uh, my application and method was very much derived from the desire to address a particular aim um, and in this research that's to explore how uh, the long-term function and use has unfolded, or the legacy of how the legacy of Olympic venues has unfolded um, since their respective Olympic Games. As uh, the the kind of main premise of this is to understand how, as designers, we can better support long-term function of buildings and sites through quality designs for cities and communities within which they exist. Using a mixed methods approach, um, I used archives to build up a comprehensive historical picture of the proposals for design, the construction for the games, and then the longer term um, adaptation and use that has taken place. Um, subsequently, uh, you know, different, um, obviously the Olympic Games have taken place every four years since, uh, with a few exceptions, um, every four years since their advent. Um, and each different Olympic city has a, a different stage in its legacy. Um, but the generative part of my research, so by going to visit the sites and photograph research to track photograph venues and sites to track their development over the years and compare this with the archival materials, it's creating a, a kind of a snapshot of this particular moment in history, which I suppose might become a part of the archives of the future. So research in architectural history depends heavily on the availability, relevance and accessibility of archival resources. And although there's a huge wealth of archival information available on the topic of the Olympic Games, it's not necessarily organised or catalogued to specifically track architectural design. Um, because of the time that resources in the archives are captured, um, the subsequent adaptation and reuse of venues and sites isn't always captured. And um, although so in some collections they are, um, but particularly with early editions of the games who have a longer kind of legacy to have taken place already, um, there's more possibility for that. Um, but the, the collections that are available and the archives that are available to determine this um, can vary quite widely. Um, a source that was particularly useful for me in my research was the Olympic World Library and the archive at the Olympic Studies Centre. Um, but there are many other kind of building libraries, Olympic museums, local and regional archives. Um, which have played a part in my research and have been really uh, kind of relevant and important in uncovering some of the kind of forgotten or not widely known uh, legacies of Olympic venues. Um, so the, the collections of uh, the Olympic Museum have come very quite widely depending on the, um, the way that records have been uh, documented and, and the era in which um, in which information has been recorded. So more recent editions of the games have a much more extensive collection um, 
of documents around the architectural design um, of venues in comparison to some of the uh, earlier editions of the games. So the archival records are not always consistent and because they're not, um, not to get pulled together purely for um, the purpose for which I was researching, there can be a, a much more kind of um, a, a wide variation in the different documents that are available. Um, some of the kind of lesser known buildings are less, less well documented uh, in comparison to those which are particularly iconic. Um, and it's not always the, uh, the resources which you kind of expect to, um, to accommodate the information about architecture and design that have a useful kind of a, a useful function. So, for example, you know, in in visitor guides, there are useful maps that document the different developments of the city. Sometimes these are found in kind of much uh, less well known um, and sites and exhibitions. Um, so museums and and kind of pop-up exhibitions and those which are hidden in um, kind of Olympic venues that uh, aren't necessarily kind of widely known about. Uh, the digitization and digital photography um, has really transformed access to images in many ways and potential possibilities for analysis and presenta presentation. Um, but there are some issues around viewing kind of large-scale architectural drawings online and uh, the kind of excess of information for photographic resources can vary tremendously and, and be quite overwhelming as a mass of digital data, um, which makes it really necessary to have a clear strategy when working with large collections of images. Um, so in addition to this uh, discovery of kind of um, around the, the more widely known um, resources, Oral histories and uh, interviews with operators and architects became a really important part of my research to kind of uncover those stories of development that are less well known. And um, to really kind of develop a wider picture about sites and their reuse. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Laura. I've just encouraged everyone to briefly unmute themselves and applaud. So our second speaker today is Heather Ditka. Um, Heather is an Associate Professor of Sport History and Sport Management at De Montfort University and a member of the International Centre for Sports History and Culture there. She's the Europe Regional Editor for the International Journal of the History of Sport and has edited three books, Olympic Reform 10 Years Later with Bruce Kidd, Diplomatic Games, Sports, Statecraft and International Relations Since 1945 with Andrew Johns, and Out This Summer, Soccer Diplomacy, International Relations and Football since 1914. Her research focuses on the Cold War, especially the two German states, NATO and international sport. Um, so over to you, Heather, um, if you want to share your screen, if you've got slides. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much, Rap. Um, so my research is on international sport and diplomacy, and I want to talk a little bit about my own research, 
but more so I want to talk um, during my paper here of finding Olympic history and non-sport archives about my experiences in the archives, um, which I hope will be helpful for scholars who are looking for materials, but also for archivists um, to help researchers. So much of sport history, and really especially Olympic history, has been written based on the papers of the sport organizations um, themselves, and this includes the Organizing Committee of the Olympic Games, or OCOGS, and papers from sport leaders. Now, some sport organizations maintain their own archives, and most notably the International Olympic Committee in Lausanne, Switzerland, and the International Paralympic Committee in Bonn, in Germany. Many international federations and national Olympic committees and national governing bodies for specific sports also kind of maintain or hold their own papers, but for them, it's often just those files that are, you know, usually downstairs in the basement up in a different room um, and not actually a real archive um, as we think about it um, as, as scholars and researchers. Occasionally, some national governing body materials have been moved to national archives. Um, for instance, older records from the Norwegian national governing bodies have been moved to the Dijksarkivet in Oslo. Um, but this is not all that common. OCOG files, um, we can often find them at local or regional um, archives. I know that's something that Laura just mentioned, um, often as a result of the extensive involvement of local government or major individuals in those endeavors. So long time, um, materials from the long time Olympic um, host, or uh, Olympic bidder of Detroit um, have been um, nine-time loser, and it's kind of quote-unquote Olympic Committee, um, are held at the Detroit Public Library. And the Salt Lake City bid and OCOG files are at the University of Utah, which interestingly were supposed to remain closed for quite some time, but they very much rushed to open those files, um, kind of quickly made a finding aid of, I think, over 200 boxes um, during Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign because he was, um, he had also been in charge of the Olympic Committee um, as they were um, after the scandal. Um, individual people's papers can be held in many locations. They could be found in a place like the British Library, and often in North America and the United Kingdom, um, we see individuals' papers held at university archives. Some of these collections are well known, um, such as longtime IOC President Avery Brundage's papers at the University of Illinois, or Philip Noel Baker's papers at Cambridge's Churchill College Archives, for instance. Other lesser known individuals' papers are dotted across university archives and take some digging to find, but when you do find them, they can be real gold mines. For my research, John Stanley Mullen papers held at Dartmouth College's Browner Library have been invaluable. Mullen was heavily involved in the International Ski Federation for over two decades, including as the vice president for most of the 1960s. Now, Mullen himself is not really known, but yet he saved every single one of the International Ski Federation minutes, all of his correspondence with anyone else in the International Federation, and his reports back to the US Ski Federation. Um, and so his papers at Dartmouth are really a great collection. Now, while all of these types of sport records, um, or all of these records from sport organizations directly, they are, of course, essential for our understanding of the Olympics, the summer games, the winter games, the more recent youth games, as well as the Paralympics. But there's much to be gained from using federal government records, 
often contained within the National Archives and, in the case of the United States, the Presidential Libraries, which are also part of the National um, Archives and Records Administration. Now, using these archives can sometimes be challenging for sport historians. As a PhD student, I participated in the Summer Institute for Conducting Archival Research, organized by George Washington University's Cold War Group. And this brought an international group of PhD students together um, and really was a valuable multi-day experience. And on the last day, they took us to the National Archives in College Park, Maryland to speak with archivists. Um, and this was a really great opportunity because as PhD students embarking on our research, the idea of going to the National Archives can be kind of big, scary, and daunting. And this gave us a chance to talk with the archivists directly um, and get started on our research. I explained my project, my PhD project at the time, on the Western Allied use of sport um, to help with democratization of occupied Germany after 1945. And at one point, I guess I walked away to maybe, you know, turn in my slips. And the archivist turned around to my Australian friend and said, she's not going to find anything. I don't know how she thinks she's going to write an entire PhD dissertation. But it turns out there really was a lot of material for me, um, contrary to what the archivist thought. It's just that my materials were not listed under the word sport or Olympics within the finding aids. Um, when I did look up those words, um, sport did show up in the finding aid for the, the military government um, records. Those entries were quite thin. And what it made it look like was all the occupation troops did was actually play sporting events against each other. So all the American troops against each other and then inter-allied competitions against the British and French troops. It didn't even make it look like they were there to occupy Germany. But instead, the material I wanted was located under the Education and Cultural Relations Branch, um, as well as the Youth Activities section within it. And it was here, in these locations, where the discussions about the use of sport and the implementation of projects involving sport to democratize Germany were extensive. And that was my PhD research. When I moved on to my next project on um, international sport and NATO during the Cold War, I basically had the same kind of concerns from the NATO archivists. Um, you know, on the organization's involvement, particularly in the bidding for the 68 Summer and Winter Olympics. You know, NATO is a military alliance, and they thought, why are you coming to use our records? We have nothing to do with sport. But by that point in, in this project, I had already found the records in the U.S. State Department files, as well as the German Auswärtigesamt. Um, and I could confidently tell the NATO archivists, you do have materials relating to my project, um, trust me on this. And then by the end of my research trip in Brussels, they were really surprised with just how much material I had copied during my visit. So what scholars during this, doing this kind of research like myself have found is that using foreign ministry and other federal government records is revealing on many levels and really deepens our understanding of sport history stories that we already know. West Berlin mayor, and future uh, West German Chancellor Willy Brandt uh, proposed in 1963, the very beginning of 1963, um, a very short-lived idea that all of Berlin, East and West Berlin, should host the 1968 Olympic Games. Now, mind you, he's proposing this idea barely more than a year after the Berlin Wall went up. You know, so this is an idea that um, was pretty crazy to everyone. Now, German scholars have, on the whole, considered this proposal of all of Berlin hosting the Olympics a propaganda stunt on Brandt's part, 
Um, and they've done this based on, um, they kind of come to this decision based on German sources. But my research in the American, French, and British foreign ministry records reveals that the three governments actually worked extensively to kill this bid, um, and especially the Americans and French, because they both had cities bidding for the summer games already. So what this reveals is a very different type of anti-Olympic bid effort. You know, more recently, we're used to thinking about anti-Olympic efforts coming from the grassroots and local level um, against a bid in their own cities. And what we see here was national governments from competing cities working actively to kill an Olympic bid. So in addition to these anti-Berlin bid efforts, we also have the American, French, Norwegian, and Canadian diplomats at NATO trying to help their candidate cities for the 68 Summer and Winter Games um, by coordinating their responses to the IOC's demand for um, a guarantee of free travel for all athletes and officials, whichever city should win. You know, both of these stories about the 68 bids, um, we've known about these basic elements. You know, Berlin was briefly proposed, travel was an issue in the 1960s, but the diplomatic archival materials that reveal a far more complicated situation from the stories that we have previously known. And another example where government files can bring entirely new insight into an aspect of sport history is technology. The development of satellite technology in the 1960s enabled the broadcast of international sport and especially the Olympic Games across the globe, an important step in the expansion of the games as well as sport in general around the world. But what has not really been addressed in that history is that diplomats became involved in the broadcast negotiations. The State Department and its diplomats in Tokyo worked tirelessly in conjunction with the Japanese and international television companies and the newly created Communications Satellite Corporation, or COMSAT, on the technical, financial, and other aspects to enable the satellite broadcast of the 1964 Summer Olympics from Japan to the United States and Europe in particular. This influence of governments and diplomats in facilitating these international broadcasts has yet to be investigated in full. The State Department records for Japan 1964 included several folders devoted entirely to these COMSAT negotiations. Additional files within other federal department records likely exist to provide greater understanding of this process, as well as materials from the Japanese archives. I came across these files during my research. I'm not working on this project, so um, I hope somebody else out there is, and if they're interested in these materials, you know, please feel free to reach out to me. But in order to find these kind of materials in the archives, it's important for researchers to know where to look. The words sport or Olympics and Paralympics often don't appear in finding aids. Researchers therefore need to think creatively and sometimes do a bit of detective work to figure out what words or categories these materials were filed under. So going back to my earlier research on occupied Germany, once I found those materials under the Education and Cultural Relations branch of the US occupation structure, I found references to Directive 23, um, which turned out to be the Allied Control Directive on the limitation and demilitarization of sport in Germany. And this document was passed, as you can see, in December 1945. That was really early in the occupation of Germany that the Allies were thinking about sport. This was a quadripartite document passed by the Americans, French, British, and Soviets. So from there, I was able to trace backwards 
through the wartime planning, going back to 1944 for the earliest Allied considerations about German sport, that they were thinking before the war was over, what do we do with German sport? So the materials are there in the archives. We just have to figure out how to find them. And this is where the archivists can, and of course do, help us researchers find these materials. The more open-minded archivists are, and perhaps a little bit less like the original NARA archivists and NATO archivists, um, the ones who initially thought I was never going to find anything for my projects, the more support materials filed away can be used by researchers. The Dartmouth archivists had no idea just how incredible the Mullen collection is. Um, and every time I've gone back to them, um, just for asking for clarification or a document I didn't fully copy back many years ago, um, I've just reminded them again and again how wonderful this collection is. If an archive has a research grant um, for traveling to them in, in that time when we can actually leave our houses and, and travel to archives again, um, including sport as one of the areas for research within their collections, in their description about what they have, will help alert scholars to those collections and expand their use. Um, archivists can even make specific sport collection-focused posts on each sport to alert the approximately 1,400 scholars who are interested in the sport humanities about those materials. From a national archive um, or federal government perspective, it also entails recognizing that government officials did address sport in many ways, and they did so frequently. So to support Calgary's 1968 Olympic bid, the government actually formed an interdepartmental committee on the 1968 Winter Olympics. And as you can see here, this included members from the Departments of National Health and Welfare, from External Affairs, so the Canadian Foreign Ministry, Finance, Northern Affairs and Natural Resources, um, because some proposed lands fell um, within the Banff National Park. Now, my entry to these files has been through diplomacy, has been through the Department of External Affairs. But other researchers interested in environmental history, for instance, would want to look at the Northern Affairs and National Resources files related to Calgary's Olympic bids. Um, and it wasn't just 68 that continued bidding afterwards and ultimately won the 88 Olympics. So the more archivists can help researchers identify where and how sport materials and discussions are located, the more new perspectives and insight into sport history we'll have and the richer the scholarship will be. Thank you. Thank you very much, Heather. If we could just all unmute ourselves and give her a round of applause. Um, so our, our third speaker today is uh, Robert McNichol. And Robert has been the librarian of the Kenneth Ritchie Wimbledon Library, which is part of the Wimbledon Lawn Tennis Museum, since 2016. He's passionate about tennis history and has introduced several initiatives to promote research into the history of tennis, including Wimbledon's annual tennis history conference and the Alan Little Bursary, introduced in honour of the library's founder. So I'll hand over to Robert now. Um, Robert, I don't know if you've got slides you want to... There we go. Start screen sharing. Great. Over to you. Thanks, Raf, and uh, hello, everybody. It's very nice to be here today. As uh, as Raf said, I'm the the librarian at the the Kenneth Ritchie Wimbledon Library, um, which is the library you can see here. And basically, I thought I would include a picture just to remind myself what it looks like because it's been quite a while since I've I've seen it myself. Um, I was very lucky to uh, to inherit this library from the, the great Avon Little, um, who was a a great uh, friend and mentor to me and uh, and many tennis historians all over the world. 
Um, it's especially fitting that I'm here talking about Olympic tennis because Olympic tennis was uh, one of Alan's great passions. And the book that you see here was a book he wrote in 2008 on tennis and the Olympic Games. Um, it, it's a, a full history of every Olympic tennis event and includes the results from from uh, every every match in Olympic tennis history. So, um, so what I'm going to do today is give you a very brief sort of um, tour of Olympic tennis history through some of the objects in, in our collection. The very first uh, Olympics uh, featured tennis. Um, and in fact, the tennis events took place in the middle of the velodrome um, after the cycling events. Um, and it was won by a man called John Bolland, uh, who's an Irishman who went to watch the games. Uh, cut a long story short, he ended up playing and, and won the singles and the doubles. Uh, so the book you see here is, the, is his published diary. Uh, for the, um, in 1908, the games were, were held in London for the first time. And interestingly, there were actually two tennis events. Uh, there was a, an indoor event, which was held at Queen's Club in, in May. And then the, the outdoor event was held uh, at Wimbledon in July, just after the, the championships. And the, the programme you can see here is the, the programme from that outdoor event in, in July. And the PC here is a, is a review of all the events in those games. And in fact, the page on display here isn't in fact um, about the lawn tennis tournament. It's about the, the real tennis tournament. Um, it's a sport also known as, as court tennis or, or royal tennis in, in other countries. And uh, 1908 was the only time that, that real tennis has been included uh, in the Olympics. The um, winner um, of one of those competitions, the, the, uh, the indoor tournament at Queen's, uh, was a man called Arthur Gore. And um, back, in, back in those days, medalists also got a certificate uh, with their medal. And this is, this is the certificate that, that Gore was awarded. And here we can see a, a couple of medals uh, from those games. Uh, the, the one on the left is, is Gore's gold medal. And the one on the right, is the silver medal. Uh, that was won by Dora Boothby in the, the outdoor uh, ladies singles event. Um, and uh, Boothby uh, the following year went on to win the, the championships at Wimbledon. And here we can see a page from the Sporting and Dramatic News. Um, and the pictures at the bottom show uh, some pictures from the, the tournament at, at Wimbledon, which, which was at Warple Road in those days. Um, and the pictures here are of, of Major Ritchie, who won the, won the outdoor tournament and Otto Freutzheim, who, who was the runner-up. Uh, moving on to 1912, there were again two, uh, two tennis events, an indoor and an outdoor one. The, the star of those games um, was uh, the French woman, Marguerite Brocadie. Uh, she won the, uh, the singles and the doubles, and she was featured on the front cover of this uh, French magazine. And here she is again. This is a, a commemorative uh, from the, the Stockholm Games. Here she is uh, receiving her medal from uh, King Gustav of Sweden, who was, uh, who was very known as a passionate a tennis player and, and, and fan. And moving on to 1924, um, that was the last time um, tennis was held at the Olympics for quite some time. This is the cover of the, of the programme from those games. Um, interestingly, although the games were held in, in France, and this was the start of, the, of France's domination of tennis, they, they didn't actually win any of the, the gold medals. Uh, the, um, America won all five, all five gold medals. Um, Helen Wills won the, won the ladies, and um, Vinnie Richards won the, the men's. Though um, 
Interestingly, as we can see here, although the although the, the following games in Amsterdam didn't contain tennis, this is a commemorative plate from our collection that actually depicts tennis as one of the games, as one of the sports in the games. Um, so after 1924, the, um, there was no more tennis at the Olympics for, for quite some time. In 1968, it did feature as a, a demonstration event, um, but that was also the year that tennis became open for the first time. So um, because of issues with the, the nature of professionalism, it was a while before it actually came back into the games properly. Um, when it did come back, it was in 1984 as a, a demonstration event at the uh, Los Angeles Games, and the organisers invited back some, some famous tennis players from the past. And uh, this is actually a medal, a commemorative medal that was presented to the great Arthur Ashe, at, at, who was a guest at those games. And tennis came back as a full Olympic sport in 1988. We can see here the, the official poster from those games and also um, a couple of commemorative stamps that were, that were um, published in Indonesia to commemorate the, the Seoul Games. Uh, the, the, the notable thing about the 88 Games was that Steffi Graf won a ladies title. In addition to the, to the, the four Grand Slam titles she won that year, uh, that made up her uh, historic Golden Grand Slam, which was a, a unique achievement in tennis. And moving on to 1996, um, it was back in the day when Britain were notoriously disappointing in the Olympics, didn't win very many medals. But one of the highlights was when they won the, the silver medal in the, the men's doubles with, with uh, Tim Henman and Neil Broad. And we can see here the, the, the Tim Henman's silver medal, which is part of our collection. Uh, moving on to uh, 2008, this is a, by then Andy Murray had broken through as one of the favourites for 2008. And this is a, a page from a preview magazine about him and, uh, and his brother. Unfortunately, he lost in the first round, which was quite disappointing, but safe to say he made up for it in the next, uh, the next two versions of the Games. 2012, um, the Olympics was back at Wimbledon, and it looked something like this. It's um, extremely different from what Wimbledon usually looks like during the championships. Um, and so, as you can imagine, we, we collected a huge amount of stuff from these Games to, to commemorate it. The, the purple banners around the grounds are, are now, some of them anyway, are, are now in our museum collection. We can see here Andy Murray on the podium after, after winning the medal. The, the podium is, is now in, in the collection as well. Um, and it, even the, the uh, Olympic Rings logo on the net, that's, that we collected that as well. Um, we also collected outfits. So, um, Andy Murray didn't just win the uh, the singles. He, he also got to the final of the double mixed doubles with Laura Robson, and uh, these are the these are the outfits they wore during the games. Um, another interesting aspect from 2012 um, was that uh, the, the Royal Mail produced uh, commemorative stamps and first day covers for all the British gold medalists, and this is the one to commemorate Andy Murray's achievement. Um, in addition to all the, those other unusual items we collected, we, we collected more straightforward things like this uh, this leaflet which was a guide for fans coming to the, the tennis event um, and we also um, collected a huge number of photographs at that olympics and um, there's a photographer on site every day and we, um, we now have 1800 uh, photographs from those games in our in our photo archive and this, this is obviously murray with his his two medals 
And to coincide with the Games, uh, we did a, an, a special exhibition which was very successful, uh, focusing on the on the history of the Olympics um, and Paralympic tennis events. This is a this is a picture from that exhibition. Um, and just touch briefly on some other items in our collection that, that are helpful for researchers. We, we do have a um, programmes from the majority of um, Olympic and Paralympic Games. We have a magazine called World Sports, which is the official magazine of the British Olympic Association. And we also have a, a massive collection of newspapers and periodicals from all over the world, you know, which obviously include reports on, on the Olympic Games. In terms of our... I thought what I wasn't expecting this slide, but... Um, one, this, is, this is one of my favourite books from the collection. It's a, a relatively recent acquisition. Um, it's a it's a book published by the ITF. It's called uh, My Life, My Medal, and it profiles all the all the medalists from the from the, the Olympics and Paralympics since it was reintroduced. Um, and it's actually available online, so you don't even have to come to the library to, to be able to to view that. In terms of our future collecting priorities, that the, um, our collecting policy is something we're actually working on at the moment during lockdown, but we're very keen to collect. Um, more more wheelchair tennis items and Paralympic items. We're obviously very keen to collect um, um, items from British players. So next year at the Tokyo Olympics, we'll be trying to collect items from the British players involved. And obviously, we're still keen to fill in the gaps in the collection um, that, that relate to um, Olympic tennis at Wimbledon. Um, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, this is how you can. Um, Either email me or uh, or follow us on uh, Twitter or Instagram. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Robert. Uh, just encourage everyone to unmute yourselves quickly. Our fourth and final speaker today is Helena Byrne. Helena is curator of web archives at the British Library. As part of her role, she has co-curated the three UK web archive sports collections. She's the current lead curator of the International Internet Preservation Consortium Content Development Group National Olympic and Paralympic Committee's collection. She was previously the lead curator of the 2018 and 2016 Olympic and Paralympic collections. Helena completed her master's degree in library and information studies at University College Dublin in 2015. Um, so I'll pass over to Helena now. Uh, as uh, Raf mentioned, I'm the curator of web archives, but to start off uh, today's presentation, I wanted to give you an introduction to just some of the vast amount of resources that the British Library holds, but I couldn't fit that many in, so I've just picked three. <laughs> so this one is quite cool. So it's uh, in, from the ancient Olympiads and it's part of our uh, manuscripts collection. And um, then we've got some stamps, which you've probably seen some of on our registration form and through some of the blog posts that went out. And um, we also have a lot of Paralympic um, collections as well. So this is just a screenshot from a blog post on our Sound Archive um, blog. And it's got snippets of uh, Paralympic um, athletes and also Ida Bromley, who was involved in physiotherapy of, um, in the early days of the Paralympic Games. Um, oh. I'm going too fast. But as Heather has previously discussed, that there are Olympic and Paralympic materials in many non-sporting archives. At the British Library, references to Olympics and or Paralympics can be found in all areas of our collections. So it might not necessarily seem like the philatelic collection is a great place to go for Olympic-related materials, but as you can see from here, we do actually have quite a lot of Olympic-related stamps. I would have more recent ones as well from the London 2012 Games. Um, 
This is just three examples, uh, but if you look at the researching the games hashtag, you'll see that some of my colleagues in the library have been tweeting or blogging as well um, with some areas from their collections that they wanted to highlight for today. So um, this is a screenshot from the Sport and Society uh, website that it's no longer online. You can find it in the UK Web Archive, but it was previously um, the library was divided up by subject. So we had a dedicated sports curator, but more recently it was restructured and now the library collections are organized by thematic departments. So we no longer have this sport and society website, but you can still view all the resources online. In 2012, when the Olympics were coming around, uh, the library had a, um, did a lot to document the games. We had hosted a collaborative PhD student, Andy Rackley, you might be familiar with his research. And also we hosted a, a free exhibition and had a number of events. So this is not the first time that, you know, the British Library has hosted an Olympic event, but it might be the first virtual one. <laughs> so I don't know if you can see in the lineup of speakers, and um, that um, in the original event back in 2012, Professor Matthew Taylor from the Montford University spoke at that event, and I think he's in the audience for today. And so it's quite fitting that we have Heather from the Montford University in today's panel. Um, so uh, in the build-up to 2012, we had a lot of these resources, and you can still, this, um, by following the link on the slide, you can actually view over time how the website developed and what resources they added to it. So you may be wondering, web archives is maybe a bit too contemporary for the periods of history that you're looking at. But actually, the web as we know it is 31 years old this year, and web archives have been around for 24 years. The Internet Archive was one of the first, but there are many more from around the world. And uh, there's many national institutions do web archiving programs as well as some research libraries. And this book, it's an open access book, so if you just follow the link, you can view it online. Uh, it kind of gives a good overview of the type of research that um, people can look to. There's no sporting articles in it, but some of the uh, methods that they use could be applied to sporting context. So Jane Winters, who originally um, trained as a medieval historian um, as now an expert in web archive research, um, has said that this is a new kind of primary source and is almost completely on tap for humanities and social science research. Allows us to combine the big and small history to identify broad trends and recover individual voices. She's also said that it'd be impossible to do a history of the 90s without including web archives, because most of that content wouldn't be on the live web anymore. Ian Milligan, who's a historian of uh, 1960s youth movements, um, also became an ex-developed skills in web archiving, said in the digital age, we can document and remember more than ever before, but the scale of historical material is so huge that we've it will decisively change how scholars interested in the past research and write. So it's not just the born digital material, but also the digitized materials is so vast that there's so much for researchers to look at now um, than let's say 20, 30, 40 years ago. But, um, So we could also see that one of my colleagues in the European Languages Department has uh, tweeted today about an article that was originally published on that British Library Sport and Society website about the 1936 Berlin Olympics, which highlights that the web archive is not just a valuable primary resource, but can also provide a lot of secondary research material for people who look at earlier periods where there was no internet. Um, this article um, kind of gives an overview of um, the 1936 games and what collections we hold in the library related to them in the reference department and it has a bibliography but you can't access this article on the live web you have to go to the web archive to view it. 
Yeah, so we, as Raph mentioned, this is a significant year for the UK Web Archive. Uh, we're celebrating 15 years of uh, making available the UK archived UK web space. And um, a lot of the web changes over time. Um, so even just going back two or three years ago, this large percentage of the web has disappeared. They reckon on average that a web page lasts for between 70 to 100 days days before it goes offline. So it's very ephemeral and it's a lot more um, ephemeral and um, fragile than let's say printed material, which can, uh, can last for a lot longer. So the UK Web Archive is made up of deposit libraries. Um, along with the three national libraries, we have the um, academic libraries, the Bodleian, uh, Cambridge and Trinity College in Dublin. So we have three access points to our collection. So through our website, you can actually, it was just launched in 2018, you can actually view what was uh, previously kind of hidden through our catalog system um, of the legal deposit content that we don't have open access for. This is because um, in 2005 when we started Web Archive, it was done on a selective basis. So we selected UK published content but had to ask the website owners for permission to archive them and make it available on our website. But with the, re with the introduction of non-print legal deposit regulations in 2013, this meant we could start doing large-scale web archiving without permission. We just need to ask permission from the site owners to make it openly available. And we then were able to do a domain crawl where we run for three months just collecting all the UK top level domain names or anything hosted in the UK um, for three months every year. And we also have the Shine interface. So this is kind of to fill the gaps in the um, archive collection. So it runs from 1996 to April 2013 when non-print deposit was introduced. And it's everything that was archived by the Internet Archive on the .uk domain. And you can do lots of different uh, trend search on it as well. And there was a number of derived data sets that are openly available for a big data um, research uh, project. So we'd love to see more sporting research done with this data. So we're curating, um, as Raph mentioned, I'm co-curator on these three sporting collections. So these were set up in 2017, but we've been collecting sports-related materials since the start. Um, I, you know, sport is a huge area that's on the internet and on the UK web space. So the sports collection is just developed um, by broad sporting teams. So it, uh, it's by foot, ball sports, um, water sports, that kind of categorization. Whereas with football is such a huge part of British um, society that we've had its own dedicated collection. And there's three, uh, well, four sporting codes um, mainly represented. So we have Gaelic football, rugby, which then is subdivides into union or league. And we have um, soccer. But the soccer is the one that's most developed because we have resources that can do that. So if anybody would like to do more with our rugby collections, we'd love to um, work with your expertise and um, so we soccer goes into much more kind of granular level so we go by clubs we go by um, fans we go by um, sports and history and I actually would just want to go back to the sports collection we're collaborating with Robert um, at Wimbledon uh, Lawn Tennis Museum to curate the tennis section of that collection then we have the sports international events which is um, mostly covers UK international sporting events but not all of them because it just depends on what resources are available but also how much of the content is published in the UK because we can only archive content in the UK uh, web space so recently um, 
England and Wales hosted the um, Cricket World Cup. But as the Cricket Association is based in Dubai, um, all their web content was published there and it was out of scope for our collections. And we do have four Olympic collections. We've got um, 2010, 2012, 2014 and 2016. Um, and going back to the shine, uh, this is kind of just an example of some of the trends research that you can do to see how popular certain terms are on the archive.uk web. So I've just done a simple search here of Olympics, London 2012 and Paralympics. Unfortunately, Paralympics isn't that well um, discussed uh, actually on the archive web and we can see there's a huge jump for uh, 2012 when London hosted the games for all three um, terms and if you click at any point in the graph you can see there it tells you um, how many resources were archived out of the total data set and then it gives you a random list of 100 and it links out to the internet archive to view the archive page. So the British Library as an individual along with the National Library of Scotland are members of the International Internet Preservation Consortium and um, as part of that there is, um, we're, as Ralph mentioned, we're also celebrating 10 years of archiving Olympic Games. So the, uh, but the recently we do it through the Content Development Group which was formed in 2015 and we, when the Content Development Group was formed it uh, tried to do a more kind of structured way to collections, systematic way that we repeat year after year. And, um, and the collections got a lot bigger and started to document uh, events both on and off the playing field. So we can see here the countries that we've collected so far in our collections, and you can see the wide geographic spread. It's quite vast. However, if we look at the um, depth of these collections, we can see that it's still quite limited to where we've got member institutions. Um, and that also goes for um, each year there was a different data budget allocated as well for our collections. So in 2016 we had quite a generous allocation so we were able to collect a lot um, more media heavy uh, websites and YouTube channels whereas in the 2018 um, Winter Olympic Games we had a smaller data budget and uh, had to cap the um, size that we had for a different um, web content. So for, we excluded any YouTube channels in 2018, but we did include social media like Twitter and uh, other media heavy websites like news channels. But we ran a pre-crawl where we were able to see the file size that was collected and then put a cap on each one that exceeded um, our data budget. And this kind of just gives you a summary of the collection. So in 2010, the collection only focused on the Olympics, whereas from 2012, we've collected both the Olympics and the Paralympics. And, uh, but in 2012 and 2014, there was two separate collections for each of those games. Whereas in 2016, it was the first Olympic collection after the CDG was formed. And we merged both of the events together because there's a lot of overlap in some of the web content. And, um, and you can see here the kind of different th main themes that we cover in those collections. And languages is another area um, benefit of these collections is that it covers a wide variety. You can see that um, you might be surprised that French is the most dominant language in the collection rather than English, and then uh, followed closely by Japanese. Portuguese and uh, Danish and Norwegian follow quite strongly as well. But you can see there's a number of languages there that have only got one, two or three um, 
resources for them. So when we do run these collections, we do have a public nomination form and welcome uh, nominations from the research community and Olympic and Paralympic enthusiasts, and especially people from, uh, you know, have got language skills in these areas. And um, as the lead curator of the National Olympic and Paralympic Committees, I've been reviewing different websites and uh, adding them to our collections. Uh, so I did a review on the IOC um, website and uh, the IOC recognizes the most number of countries out of any organization. Um, but having an NOC website is not mandatory. Uh, 36 countries listed on their website did not have a website link on them and 17 of those had some issues. So there might have been a web link, but it actually, they use a different URL and uh, there was other errors with it. Um, but you can see here, these are the, all the countries that had issues with their um, websites or were not listed and, um, on the NOC website. And you can see there's a huge digital divide, especially in Africa and some of the countries in South and Central America as well. Um, many of these countries probably use social media platforms to um, promote their NOC or I, um, IPC um, activities. Um, I did see in 2016 from the Kenyan Facebook page that they did launch uh, a website during the Rio Games but it was on, online very briefly so I missed it and we weren't able to add it to our collection. Um, this causes issues with um, social media is a little bit more challenging to archive than a regular website uh, but also makes it harder to identify so again when we're running this collection next year again um, we'll have a public nomination form and we'll put a call out for the research community and people involved in the olympics as well to help us to identify their web content so we can document them as web archiving is a relatively new form of um, archiving um, not everybody does it so like many of the national institutions in many countries do web archive and have web archiving programs but not all of them do and also in the international olympic committee archives um, they don't really cover web content so the iopc collections really follow um kind of fill a huge gap in uh, archival research for the future because um a lot of this stuff is it's very ephemeral and it disappears and is uh and it won't be available as we move on now to where most of the materials are being published online only and not just online and print. So there's lots of different ways for you to get involved in the web. So if you are researching um, and publishing on a blog or through any uh, special research project that has an online presence, you can nominate your UK published content to the UK Web Archive, which are Save the UK website. But due to legislation, we can only archive anything published within the UK. Um, but if your content is from outside the UK, you can nominate it to the uh, UK Web Archive. They have a Save the Page Now. It's quite a um, cool feature. You just put in your URL, press Save the Page Now, and a few seconds later, the archive page appears with date and timestamp. So it's quite a handy resource if you're using um, another website as a reference in your research. You can save it on the day that you looked at it, so you know it'll be available in the future when you go back to uh, tidy up your citations before publication, and it wouldn't have changed. There's also the Portuguese Web Archive, and they archive uh, a number of websites from both Portugal but also outside Portugal, and you can just go to their website and send them an email with your nominations. And then there's just a few useful links to, uh, related to the UK Web Archive. So, uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Helena. If you could all join me in a round of applause. We have had some questions come in, um, so I will uh, read them out, um, and uh, yeah, hopefully we can 
get some answers. Um, so if we start off with, we had a, a question coming quite early for Laura, or actually a couple of questions um, that I'll that I'll say together, um, because they both relate to um, you mentioned an oral history component to your research, Laura. Um, and so there was a question from um, Lewis Henrique Rollem. Apologies if I have mispronounced your name. Um, can you say more about that approach? Um, and then a question from Kevin Moore about whether there were any language issues in doing those oral histories. So Laura, do you want to come in and have a go at talking about that? Yeah, um, so yeah, I, I used kind of that type oral history type approach really is to, to kind of construct um, a new history of the architecture. Um, I conducted interviews as part of my research with um architects and with operators um and then had some kind of uh, conversations with um kind of building users and that that were really kind of interesting and insightful as to understand how venues kind of uh really worked now for the current function and also to gather kind of history um about the reuse over time but i mean you know it was my study was kind of a, a um a broad spanning uh in in terms of kind of the era that it spanned um so obviously it's kind of difficult for the earlier editions of the games to really gather that type of information you know you can't it's more difficult to speak to the architect of, of a venue in 1948 than it is for the architect of, of one of the 2012 venues um, so, you know, that it's not kind of possible to to gather all of that data, but I, I found where where I could, it was a really useful approach to kind of gather, a, a, to help to support that and um, really comprehensive development of, of how buildings function and have been adapted and in finding out some things that you perhaps wouldn't have otherwise. And um, there were some, in terms of kind of language issues, yes, um, not just in terms of oral history, but also in terms of reading documents. Um, I don't particularly speak any language other than English very well. Um, I was quite fortunate and then I had a lot of colleagues um, who were from a lot of the cities that I was visiting and, and spoke the language. Um, so I've kind of managed with with translation um but yeah there, there were some difficulties with that but it, it i used it that kind of approach as as part of a a much wider uh, spanning research method and and it was each kind of triangulated against other research methods but it, it was something that i found really interesting and that i'd probably like to explore a little bit more okay thanks laura um we had um, a question come in for Robert um, from Susan Zief. Again, apologies if I've mispronounced that. Um, how would she find out about um, finding aids for materials on the Paralympic Games at the Wimbledon Library? Uh, thanks, Raf. Um, well, finding aids are kind of very much a, a work in a work in progress, but we don't really have anything kind of specific relating to the to the Paralympics. Um, but we, we used to have a printed version of our library catalogue, which we which we don't have anymore. Um, and I'm work, working on a kind of PDF version of that that we can get up online. And we're also looking to put the whole the whole museum and library catalogue online as well. But that's kind of that's kind of running into a few technical issues as well. But um, I would say watch watch the space for for that. 
but I'm happy if, um, if, if she's looking for any kind of information about specific items in the collection, I'm, I'm happy for, uh, um, if you could drop me a line, I'm happy to try and help. Okay, do you want to just repeat your email address? Uh, yes, it's uh, rmcn at aeltc.com. Great. Um, and then one other question for Robert that came in from Kevin Moore, um, which was, what are your collecting priorities for the future and why? Uh, uh, yeah, well, uh, collection policies are something we've been uh, we've been doing a lot during lockdown because it's uh, lockdown seems to be a good opportunity to go and do the bits of your job that you normally wouldn't find very interesting, such, uh, such as writing policies. Um, so um, yeah, we've been, so the yeah that's something we've been thinking about. Still, again, it's something that's a work in progress. But um, as a general rule, I think we want to we want to focus more on on Paralympic and uh, wheelchair tennis because I. I was I was quite interested when I was doing research for the presentation. I kind of discovered that we didn't actually have that much from the the 2012 Paralympics. I mean, that, of course, the although the Olympic tennis event was at Wimbledon, the Paralympic tennis wasn't. So that's probably why we uh, we didn't we didn't collect much from that. So, uh, but I think we could definitely uh, definitely fill some definitely gaps. Fill some gaps. Um, um, also. Going forward, I was like certainly we we always want to concentrate on the British players. So, for example, you know next year's Olympics in Tokyo, assuming they go ahead, we'll we'll hopefully try and collect from all the the British players involved. Okay, thank you. Um, question for Laura and Heather um, from Mark Ambler: How do you overcome the challenges of archival material not being English? So, I suppose that. Um, Laura, you've just spoken about oral history, but maybe Heather, you could come in here and talk about um, is, has that been an issue and how have you overcome that? So for my research, um, I do know German, Norwegian and French. So that is where I've done my research in countries that speak those languages and use those languages. Um, thankfully, some of those words in the documents um, the people running sport are not political philosophers, so it's it's easy enough to understand um, the documents. And um, obviously, for projects that are international, um, yeah, language can be really restricting. Um, and if that means um, collaborators in different countries, you know, um, just thinking about all the the Japan '64 and Comstat negotiations, you know, it, if somebody doesn't have the the Japanese skills, hopefully connecting with a scholar in Japan, you know, to who would easily be able to get those documents and translate them. And, you know, those are the kind of things where collaborators can can really yield great projects. Okay. Um, Laura, did you want to say anything else on that, about the challenges of um, written materials not in English? Yeah, so I used a lot of translating software. Um, uh, but a lot of the documents of the kind of that are held in the archives at the Olympic Studies Centre um, are published in both the language of the country uh, in which they were produced and in English. Um, so you find that a little bit less with some of the earlier editions of the Games, but certainly in more recent um, editions of the Games, it wasn't really an issue. But for those where it, they were only available or for those from kind of local archives and things, and th there are probably some uh, kind of resources out there which I haven't found because of the language difference. Um, but, for, uh, but the ones that I do have, that I just use kind of translation software. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, 
Helena, you, I think that you've partly answered this in the chat bar, um, but there was a question again from Louise uh, Henrique Rollim about um, do you have policy slash guidelines in terms of collecting and preserving social media for research? Yeah, so social media is one area we would like to collect more of because it's in scope for non-print legal deposit, but it's quite a challenging platform to archive because it's proprietary. So Twitter is the only exception because it's open source, it's easier to archive. Um, so with Facebook, we've kind of had on and off issues with it. Up until 2015, we were collecting it, no problem, but then they started to limit what you could view from um, when you weren't logged in. And, uh, but now it's kind of a little bit more open, but it's still not quite open enough for us to archive more widely. Uh, Instagram, we just get um, the thumbnail images that load when you first look at the screen. So we are quite limited in what we can collect there and Flickr, we can't get anything at all. So um, it's kind of part of the problem with web archiving is that uh, there's only quite a, a small handful of web crawl engineers in the world and um, they can only, develop the tools to read the materials that they can access. So if it's proprietary, it's more challenging to archive. Uh, but there are some tools that we would like to use at the library, but we can't because we just haven't been able to implement them into our workflows yet. So I posted a link to a, a recent experiment we did with Web Recorder, um, trying to archive UK party political leaders after the last general election. And um, we, there's also another tool that's quite interesting that you might be interested in setting up is um, uh, social feed manager so that uses can collect data social feed um, social media data and you can use it in your research and you can uh, either use it in a spreadsheet or kind of do more advanced uh, analysis with it um, but uh, my colleague Claire from the National Archives is also tweeting in at today's event so uh, they they have a different software for archiving social media as well and they've recently developed a social media hub so we work quite closely and try to develop these tools but it's, it's a challenge. Okay, thanks for that. Um, another question here for Laura um, from Harvey Abrams. Um, Laura, did you find many historical records still available at the architectural firms that designed the Olympic facilities? Did they keep their material, give it to the Olympic Committee that hired them, or dump it in the trash? Um, yeah, so certainly for more recent editions of the games, and, and you can find um, kind of architectural resources online. Um, and from practices. Um, I think the way that the official reports and candidature files uh, are compiled has changed over the years and the requirements for those have changed. Um, so certainly kind of the, the more recent editions, there are, there's much more kind of architectural um, information available. Um, but something to remember is that not all facilities that are used as host venues for the games are actually constructed for the games. So finding their, the kind of architectural information about those it can be trickier because it was constructed much earlier. I mean, some, some venues are kind of 100 years old. Um, so, so gathering those resources is a, a bit more difficult. Okay, um, and we did have another um, question come in relating to your previous answer about translation from Kevin Moore. Which translation software do you recommend? I think we'll probably have to caveat this with other translation software is available. <laughs> yeah, uh, certainly. Yeah, there, there are lots of it that are available. Um, I kind of, uh, I, it, I, I, I think I tried quite a few um, and managed quite a lot with kind of Google. <laughs> um, 
and the kind of you know the scanning apps that you can get for your phone so you can scan a text rather than inputting it on the computer so i used a variety of different things really um, and then also not everything translates perfectly in that way um, so then also kind of actually having it translated by a, a native speaker of the language where where it was necessary okay thank you that's helpful um another question for helena um from kevin moore he says given that the online world changes so quickly and expands so rapidly what challenges is this likely to pose for you in your work yeah, it's massive. <laughs> so we can never, we're not aiming to catalog the whole internet. We can only really get a snapshot or a representation of what's been online. So there's lots of material that we will miss and some of it either because of the time scale that we use to archive the web or because of just the, we don't have the technology to actually archive those type of web content. It seems that kind of more free website platforms that become available, the harder they are to archive. So that's always a challenge. But we do have on our blog, um, I can uh, post it into the chat, uh, some tips on how to make your websites archive ready. <laughs> so that can help, you know, if you're developing any more research projects and stuff like that, you can make them slightly easier for us to archive the content. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just getting bigger and bigger. So, uh, but our resources aren't always getting bigger. So it's a bit of a challenge. We'll always be one step behind website development because it takes time to adapt to the new changes. Okay, thanks for that. Um, and then there's another question for you um, from CUIQE. Um, could you extend a bit more on the usage of, of the UK web archive? Um, so visiting profiles and the types of inquiries that you get? Yeah, so it's just a really wide variety. There's no single OneWeb Archive user. So we have a lot of local historians, genealogists, um, academics, and uh, people interested in political research because we do uh, collect on general elections since 2005, uh, European elections, uh, Scottish and Welsh elections and their Scottish referendums. And also uh, the EU referendum was, and Brexit collections had a lot of more recent interest as well because some of that content was very ephemeral. Um, so it's, it's quite a wide variety of users and a lot of people who are managing their own websites, you know, might be shutting them down and they come to us. So if we always like to get, get nominations and especially if something's shutting down, we need a bit of notice. So uh, an email the day before, it does, it, it's not going to cut it. <laughs> we need at least a week to make sure that we can capture it. Okay. Um, if I may, I had a question for Robert, um, which was about um, actually, so you talked about like uh, acquiring that sweaty, I imagine it was sweaty, Andy Murray shirt, um, and also things like the um, Olympics logo from the tennis net. Um, do you just literally kind of swoop in and grab those things before they, I mean, or is there some kind of, um, kind of thought given to that before you host an event at Wimbledon as to what we will want and what other people might want to keep afterwards? And yeah. do you then have to tell Andy Murray that we want your shirt, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, back in 2012, I don't, I don't know how it worked then because that was uh, before my time, but, but now it is, it is quite well planned in advance. We do have meetings beforehand to discuss, you know, well, certainly, you know, obviously the Olympics was a one-off, but, but the, the championships happens every year, apart from this year, obviously. Um, so, yeah, we would have meetings beforehand to kind of talk about who the who we think might do well and who we'd like to collect for, you know, where are the gaps in the collection that we want to fill. And so now we do, 
we do we do write to a lot of the, the ones the players we identify as being interested. We'll, we'll write to them before the tournament and saying, you know, if if you'd like to donate anything to us, we you know we we we'd love to have it. And we might you know if we've already got several rackets from Andy Murray, we, we might say, well, we wouldn't say don't give us your racket, but we would say we would we would rather you know if you could donate an item of clothing that you know that that would be very nice. So yeah, there is there is quite a lot of uh, quite a thought that goes into it beforehand. Thank you. Um, another question for Helena um, from Dawn Newbury. Has web archiving had a positive impact on sports photography? Yeah, so uh, photography on websites and stuff like that is quite interesting. So it depends on how they, when they make the website, how they actually put it onto the site. So if they embed it in, then we're going to capture it. But you sometimes when you're looking at archive websites, you'll see lots of blank boxes. It's because they've embedded the content from an external site. So if you're embedding Flickr into a website, we're not going to be able to capture it because we can only capture what's hosted on that domain. So it gets a little bit tricky. But there's um, lots of examples. You can search on, like, let's say Shine. You can actually filter to just look through uh, file formats. So you could look at JPEGs. You could look at uh, PNGs and stuff as well. So you could uh, filter out just the imagery from the websites without looking at the content and then later move on to that um, main page. So it's, it's quite a mix. It's, uh, web archives aren't really an easy resource to use, but there are so many opportunities with them. So it's worth the challenge. Okay. Um, I just had, uh, um, I've, we've kind of burned through all our questions in the chat. So I actually had another question to ask Heather, if that's okay. Heather, do you think that you'd get a different response now from that archivist who said, um, oh, you won't be able to find anything here. I'm just thinking about um, kind of this idea that maybe sport and the history of sport and the fact that sport is political has kind of become more broadly accepted perhaps in the last few years. So do you think, what do you think about that? Um, I hope that both of them, you know, would have changed. You know, I think, I think the ones at NATO were, um, I was the only one there for a week and I, you know, told them I found a lot. I was there every day. Um, you know, and, and so hopefully they're seeing, you know, I mean, the National Archives in College Park is, is enormous, um, but I hope that the more we, um, you know, the wider that the sports history scholarship can go, um, you know, that hopefully they'll, they'll change their minds and, and say, yes, there's materials. Let me talk with you about, you know, how you can better find them. Great. Thank you. Um, okay. Well, I make it uh, 4.31. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll wrap up there. Um, thank you so much to all of our four speakers today. and Thanks to all of you for tuning into this event. Really hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. We'll be circulating information um, probably in early 2021 about the postponed in-person event, which will take place at the British Library next summer. So do watch out for that um, and hope to see some of you there. But otherwise, thank you very much um, and goodbye. Mm -hmm.